we are uh, about, about halfway through the Joseph story. Uh, as far as the years of his life, we are uh, most of the way through what we're going to deal with him, but there's a lot of stuff that gets compacted together over the last few years of his life. What we read about today really starts a, a new season in his life. Uh, some of you, this, uh, this last year has been a tough season, and you would like to start a new season yourself. I, I hope that Joseph's story is an encouragement to you today. As I was thinking about how to communicate these things to you this morning, I kept thinking about this idea of a roller coaster, that Joseph's life is very much a roller coaster. And so uh, I used my wonderful artistic skills in order to plot out Joseph's life for you. I'm going to show you this here. So childhood starts out pretty well. He's born as the, the favorite son into a large and growing, prosperous, up-and-coming family. Right? Things are pretty good for Joseph as a young person, but he's sold into slavery, taking him to a low that he could not have imagined before. But he rises up in that, that uh, situation of slavery. He rises up to be the second in charge of the house in which he is enslaved. He becomes the second most powerful person in that powerful house in Egypt. But then he is wrongfully, falsely accused, and he's imprisoned, and he goes down to a a lower low that he really couldn't have imagined even as a slave. He is in prison unjustly. But just like as a slave, as he is in prison, he rises up. God lifts him up, and he becomes the second in charge of the prison. The, the, The prison manager basically allows Joseph to have have control over the management of the prison because Joseph is obviously blessed by God and is being used to manage and lead people well. We saw last week how he had this hope of release, that he interpreted the dreams of the cupbearer and the baker who had been imprisoned, and the cupbearer is going to be released back up to to go serve Pharaoh again. And, And Joseph says, please remember me when you go back. Put in a good word for me with Pharaoh. Please try to get me out of this pit, this prison. And so his, his hopes rise, but then over the next days, weeks, eventually two years, nobody comes to get him. And so he's stuck in prison, but this time with his hopes dashed, and I'm sure it's an even lower low. That's where we pick up today. Now, through all of this, Every stage, Genesis has repeated over and over again that God was with Joseph. Now, our our natural humanity wants to argue against that because if God was with Joseph, then his roller coaster really should be going up all the time, right? It shouldn't be doing this dip and then a lower dip and then an even lower dip after that because we tend to believe that if God is with us, everything should go well. Joseph's life argues against that, and I'm thankful for that, because we fool ourselves into thinking that if God is with me, that if God is pleased with me, everything is going to go well, and that is simply not the case. In fact, your circumstances in life really tell you nothing about how you are with God. You could be at the top of your game. You could have everything that you want. Everything's going your way. And you can be entirely disconnected from and even an enemy of God. 
Or you could be the poorest of the poor in the worst situation possible, and you could be intimately connected to God, loved by God, and already spending eternity with God. What you see on the outside, your circumstances, tell you nothing about whether or not you are connected to God. We see that in Joseph's life. We see that in our lives here now. Last week, we talked about the idea of the providence of God. And I just want to go over that again, make sure that we're on top of things. But first, I want to read to you this verse from Romans 8, 28. This really fits in with Joseph's life. All, and we know that those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are calling according to his purpose. Joseph was loved by God and loved God. And all the things that were going on in his life, even those three lower dips, were being used by God for his good. We're going to see the good start to come from that today, and it's going to continue on through the next few chapters. But for, for all of those years where he's going up and down, he can't see the good. But the providence of God is at work in the background, bringing about the good in Joseph's life. We said that last week that sovereignty and providence are similar and linked ideas. The sovereignty of God is the reality of who God is. He is king. He is the sovereign ruler over everything. He created everything. He sustains everything. He holds everything together. He is the king. Providence, though, is how he works out his kingship in the world. We said that some of that is done in kind of a natural way. He's designed the world to work in certain ways. You know that next morning the sun will come up, unless God intervenes in some crazy way. The sun will come up, it'll seem to progress across the sky, and it'll go down tomorrow night. It's a system, it works, right? God's providence is at work in that still. If he decided to end that system, he could just end it. But providentially, he keeps it going. Sometimes, though, he intervenes. He, it would seem, breaks the rules of nature, of science, of the way things go. He providentially inserts himself into the story in a special way to make sure that his plan is carried out exactly as he wants it. We see both of those things happening in Joseph's life, and we see both of those things happening in our lives, too. So sovereignty and providence are really the the themes of Joseph's life here. As we come back to Joseph, we're going to look at chapter 41 today. You're going to find this on page 34 if you're looking in a pew Bible. And I will say that this is the second longest chapter in Genesis. So there's going to be more time with me just reading things and less time with the comments in between. But we will get through it, hopefully in record time. Two years have passed. Two years since his hopes were raised, two years for his hopes of getting out of the pit to be disappointed over and over again. I'm sure that many times in those two years, Joseph thought, God has finally abandoned me. God has finally forgotten me. I know the cupbearer has forgotten me. I suspect that God has forgotten me. And then out of nowhere, two years later, God intervenes. He inserts himself into the story and miraculously works his providential plan again. So, verse 1 of chapter 41. After two whole years, 
Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. Behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. Behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them, stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows, and Pharaoh awoke. That's a weird one. Right? If, if you had a dream like that and you woke up startled from it, you would probably be thinking, what was that about? That cow, cows don't eat other cows. First of all, how do the skinny cows eat the plump cows and they're still just as skinny? This is a weird one. He probably tossed around for a while and then says eventually he fell back asleep. Verse 5, he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. The thin ears swallowed up the seven plump, full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. You've probably woken up from a dream and then been relieved to realize that it was just a dream. Maybe you've had some of those. Like It takes a few seconds, you slowly realize what reality is, and you're like, oh, thank you, God, that that was just a dream. I don't know if that's what Pharaoh is thinking here. I don't know if he spends the rest of the night sleepless trying to figure out what's going on, but it seems that though, as though these dreams haunt him, they will not let him go. Verse 8. So in the morning, his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Now, when we were talking about this last Sunday evening at our outpost, we were talking about how it's surprising to us that none of these guys just take a crack at it, right? Their, their, their job, these wise men and these magicians, their job is basically to con Pharaoh, to, to claim divine communication in order to counsel him on how he should lead the country. They're skilled in the art of deception. Why not just take a crack at it? Just come up with some kind of super vague explanation, right? Like, this is, this is what the psychics and the tarot card readers and all do. They just come up with something so vague that there's almost no way it can fail, right? This was a chance for one of these guys to boldly step forward and say, here's what I think it means. And then if it comes true, great. He rises to the top. He becomes, becomes the chief wise man in the country. But I suspect they've got these lingering memories of what happened to the baker two years ago. When the baker crossed Pharaoh and the baker was hung at the prediction of Joseph. Verse 9. The chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today when Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard. We dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. So we see that the cupbearer does remember Joseph. How many times in the last two years has Joseph come to mind and then he's just gone about his day and not thought any more about Joseph, neglected him, left 
him there. How many times has Joseph been forgotten over and over again by the cupbearer? And yet at this moment in time, he remembers and he shares the story with Pharaoh. Now notice he, he edits the story some, right? He says that there's a, a young Hebrew there who's a servant. He doesn't mention that he has himself imprisoned and wrongfully convicted. The cupbearer doesn't say really anything about how he himself ended up in prison other to say that Pharaoh was mad at him. He doesn't say that I, he promised to mention to Pharaoh Joseph. He, he leaves all that stuff out. He just gives the bare details in there because he's, he's, taking, he's seizing this moment to elevate himself in the kingdom. Okay. He says, there's this guy, and he, he correctly interpreted dreams. Maybe he could do the same for you. And Pharaoh sent and called Joseph. They quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. I know some of you are thinking, I wish our, our pastor had shaved himself and gotten a haircut before he came and preached this morning. My barber is currently in the hospital right now. That's my excuse. But uh, hopefully this next week I'll get myself shorn and, uh, and I'll look more respectable and come back. Some of you guys have asked about how Jen and Owen are doing. Uh, Owen continues to get better. He's still on oxygen. Uh, but he's eating again, so he's not on IV. That's good. And we're still hoping that maybe tomorrow they can come home. We appreciate your prayers for, for Jen and for Owen. All right, so he gets himself cleaned up. He goes into Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. And at that point, I think he kind of looks around the room at all the losers who didn't want to take a crack at it. There's no one here who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. So just like before, Joseph remains humble. When he compassionately reached out to the imprisoned baker and cupbearer and said, what's wrong, guys? Why are you looking so downcast? And they shared, we had these two dreams, we don't know what to do with them. He responded with humility and said, isn't it God who interprets the dreams? Now, as he's brought before Pharaoh, the king of the land, and Pharaoh compliments him, builds him up and says, I hear that you are the dream interpreter. He doesn't take the bait. He steps back. He says, no, this is, this is God's realm. God is the one who interprets dreams. It's he says, it's not me. It's not something special about me. That humility is beautiful, and it is rare, and it comes from suffering. Joseph is strong and humble, and you don't get a strong and humble man without suffering. It's just how the world works. If you are today here, and you are strong, and you are humble, it is because God has used suffering in your life to build that strength and that humility at the same time. Strength without suffering leads to great pride. Humility without suffering, without um, something to fight against, just leaves you weak. But God uses suffering to build strong and humble men like Joseph. This is why in James, in the New Testament, we can read this. 
Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. I have loved those verses for many years, but it wasn't until reading slowly through the Joseph story and seeing how they connect with those verses in James that they really came alive to me. I tended to look at those, those uh, verses in James and, and think of them only in a supernatural way. Like, if, I, if I'm suffering and I count it all joy, then God will somehow supernaturally work and like boost my, my godliness so that I'll be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And yet, in the Joseph story, we see that there's providentially a, just a natural way that this happens. That someone surrendered to God as Lord goes through suffering and is made more perfect, made more complete in that process. And so we can count it all joy. Let's go back to the Joseph story. Verse 17. Pharaoh said to Joseph, Behold, in my dream I was standing on the banks of the Nile. Seven cows, plump and attractive, came up out of the Nile and fed in the reed grass. Seven other cows came up after them, poor, very ugly and thin, such as I had never seen in all the land of Egypt. Notice he he inserts this little comment in here that shows his pride, right? I've never seen such rotten animals in all the land of Egypt because the land of Egypt is, is beautiful, plentiful, full of great animals because I'm the leader of this land. And the thin, ugly cows ate up the first seven plump cows. But when they had eaten them, no one would have known that they had eaten them for they were still as ugly as at the beginning. Then I awoke. I also saw in my dream seven ears growing on one stalk, full and good, seven ears withered and thin and blighted by the east wind. I don't, I don't know how you can look at an ear of grain and know that it was blighted by the east wind and not the west wind, but he's apparently good with this kind of thing. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears. And I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. And I imagine at this point there's this, this pause this eager anticipation and probably some fear in Pharaoh. Anticipation, maybe this guy can actually figure this out for me. Fear that maybe he can't figure it out. And I'm going to go to bed tonight, and there's probably going to be another dream, and I don't understand it. I'm going to be haunted by these things. I imagine Joseph kind of leans back, and he's got this thoughtful look on his face, and he kind of strokes his chin and thinks about how he wants to word these things. Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years. The seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years. The seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt, but after them there will also arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. Now, even if Joseph is confident, 
that he understands the dreams, that God has given him the correct interpretation, it still takes great courage for him to say these things to Pharaoh. He's predicting, he says, this is what's going to happen over the next 14 years. It's going to be great for seven years, then it's going to be terrible for seven years. He's sticking his neck out as he talks to a person who is the world's superpower, the leader of the world. Pharaoh is not only the the leader of the superpower in the world at that time, he is considered divine, he is worshipped as a god, he has complete authority to do whatever he wants. And so if these things do not come about, or if Pharaoh just decides, hey, I don't like this message, he can just have Joseph killed. Joseph stands before the man whom others consider to be a god, and he says, you can't figure this out, but God has told me what it means. Yes, I know I'm a Hebrew slave. I know I've spent the last how many years in prison, the last two years forgotten in prison. Today is the first time I've been out in the sunlight in how many years? And yet, God is telling you, through me, exactly what's going to happen over the next 14 years. It's quite the claim. If you watch the presidential uh, press thing this week, the president said, I can't plan out, I can't even think about what's happening three and a half years out. Here's a slave from prison saying, here's what's going to happen the next 14 years. What a risk. He goes on, verse 32. The doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that, the ki- that this thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. What's he talking about? Well, we've seen multiple times in the life of Joseph that when the dreams come in pairs, it's God supernaturally working, saying that these things are actually going to happen. So we go back to the first thing, when Joseph himself has those two dreams about the, the sun and the moon and the stars bowing down for in front of him, and he and his family interpret it to mean that someday his mother and father and the other siblings will bow down to him. Now, that hasn't happened yet, but there's this surety that since it was doubled, that must mean it's, it's going to happen, right? And then we've got the twin dreams of the baker and the cupbearer. They are uh, similar, but slightly different, but they come as a pair, and they happen. And now Joseph speaking from authority that God has given him, says that these two dreams of Pharaoh are actually one, and the doubling of them means that that's definitely going to happen. Verse 39. Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house and over all my people, And all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Realize I skipped over something there. I I missed the page here. Sorry, let's go back. Uh, Verse 33. Uh, Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land. Take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years, and let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up the grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities. Let them keep it. That the food shall be reserved for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt, so that the land may not perish 
through the famine. So this is a good logical plan. You got seven years of plenty. You're going to take some of it. You're going to store it up for the seven years of famine. I want you to notice a couple of things there. First, this is essentially a forced taxation. Pharaoh, as the king, dictator, singular ruler over the whole country, he can just say, I'm going to tax you all at an extra 20%. Whatever the the tax rate already was, it's now 20% higher. The people have no, they've got no recourse. There's no elected officials, there's no process of appeal or anything that we have today. It's just Pharaoh has said an extra 20% goes out, and so an extra 20% goes out. Now, we're not told that that even bothers them, and I think that's because of the reality of those next seven years. The math suggests this. If you were going to save up food for seven years so that you had food to eat for seven years, what percentage of the food would you save up during those first seven years? Probably 50%, right? You get to eat half during the good years, you get to eat a second half during the the bad years. But the instructions are 20%, one-fifth. And yet we know from further on in the story that not only is there enough saved up to feed the nation of Egypt through those seven years, that all the surrounding nations come and they buy food from Egypt because the famine is great all over the known world. That tells us that those seven years were bumper crops. That if they could save 20% from each of those seven years and it was enough to take them through the next seven years plus all the people coming to them, that the, this was hitting the jackpot every year for seven years in a row. They had so much they didn't know what to do with it. In fact, we're told that it gets stored up and they can't even count it. They just give up the counting. There's so much. They're like, 20%, whatever, take it. I'm still doing far better than I ever have in my whole life. I've got everything I want. Seven years is one big party. And the question is, who will oversee the plan? Verse 37. The proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Now notice the singular there, in the Spirit of God. Pharaoh, who is considered divine and a God himself and leads a country that is polytheistic, lots and lots of gods and goddesses, there's something about the way that Joseph has interpreted this dream and the authority with which he has proclaimed what is about to happen that, that Pharaoh says, I recognize the spirit of God singular in him. He said, the God of the Hebrews, the God of this Joseph guy is, is somehow in him and is able to explain things that nobody else, all the representatives of the other gods and goddesses of Egypt were able to explain. Already, God is bringing glory to himself in this story. And then the part that I skipped ahead to. Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all of this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. Pharaoh said to Joseph, see, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. And so it's happened again. And so if we go back to our roller coaster, we've got a very different trajectory now. He's He's now rocketing up past all of those previous highs and lows because if Pharaoh is the leader of the most powerful nation in the world, the world's superpower at the time, and Joseph is now put as second in charge, that makes Joseph the second most powerful man in the world. 
Hours before that, he's in prison in the pit. And now he is in the palace, set in authority over the whole land of Egypt, submissive only to Pharaoh. This is, this is a fabulous story. It's even more fabulous that it's true, that it actually happened. Now remember what we talked about in the beginning. Your circumstances don't tell you whether or not you're on the side of God. Hours before this, Joseph's circumstances suggested that God was angry at him or had forgotten him or just didn't care about him. Now his circumstances would suggest that maybe God thinks he's the greatest person in the world or at least the second greatest person in the world. Circumstances don't matter. God was at work. God was with Joseph. God was loving Joseph and working through Joseph this whole time. Verse 42. The Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot. And they called out before him, bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. I have to wonder, as he's going through the land and the people are bowing down to him, does he think back through those first two dreams? And does he wonder, well, maybe I didn't quite get that right. Maybe it wasn't my parents and my siblings who were going to bow down to me. Maybe it was the people of, of Egypt who were going to bow down to me. As he finds himself revered by the entire nation. Verse 44. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh. Without your consent, no one shall lift up a hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zephanath Paniah, and he gave him in marriage Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Now I have to wonder how this marriage came about, what were the details, because Joseph here is the only representative of the one true God in the land of Egypt. He he's has an arranged marriage by order of the king with the daughter of a pagan priest. What kind of conversations took place in that home, I wonder? What, what kind of tension was there? Or was she just so convinced that she converted to the God of Joseph? If any of you have a hankering to write an historical fiction novel, I think this is the seed of a good novel right here, the story of this family. 46. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly. He gathered up all the food of these seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt, and he put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it. So it's a good plan. He's got it decentralized, spread out, ready to go. Joseph stored up grain in great abundance like the sand of the sea until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. Not only is the the country thriving, Joseph is really at the top of his game. His, His family is growing. He's got all the power and authority. Everything's going the way that he said it would go. This is, this is the highlight for him. Verse 15. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, which means forgetful, 
For he said, God has made me forget all my hardship in all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, which means fruitful. For God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. And I have to wonder, how would you like to be named fruitful? It's better than your brother, forgetful, though, right? What do these names suggest? If, if he is forgetting the struggles of his father's house, and actually it says uh, in verse 51, made me forget my hardship and all my father's house. Like I just, I'm forgetting my father's house. I'm leaving it all behind. And now I'm celebrating the fruitfulness that God has given me in this new land here. Does that mean that he is no longer considering himself a Hebrew? Is he denouncing his father's house? Would he be even denouncing the God of his family? Well, the names suggest otherwise. Even the meanings of the names point us towards this possible idea that he's, he's walking away from his past and kind of giving up on it. The names themselves are Hebrew names, not Egyptian names. And so even though he's married into this royal priestly family in Egypt, and he's the only representative of the family of God, the people of Israel, when he names his sons, he chooses Hebrew names for them. That is an act of submission to the one true God, the God of the Hebrews. It's also an act of faith, an act of hope. And maybe this land of his affliction, as he refers to it, is not really his home. He knows who he is. He knows who he belongs to. And so he names his sons accordingly. Verse 53. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come. As Joseph had said, there was famine in all lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. And Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph, what he says to you, do. I see another parallel to current times here. You have the leader of the world superpower with a crisis. He doesn't know what to do, so he says, Go to the second in command. That person will fix it, right? I don't know what to do. Go to Joseph. He's the man. So everybody comes to Joseph. Does Joseph just throw open the storehouses and say, everybody come take what you need? No. Actually a little more unsettling than that. 56. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. Now we can understand selling the grain to all the people that are coming from the other nations. But notice, they sell the grain to the Egyptians. So I'm going to tax you an extra 20% for seven years. I'm going to confiscate your stuff. And then when you're starving, I'm going to sell it back to you. Your own food, I'm going to sell it back to you. Now, we should not take this as a model of government. This is a kingdom. This is not a democracy. This is a very different system. The same way we shouldn't say, we should have a king over us in the United States because Egypt has a king. We should not take this as a model of taxation or food management. But God is using this. 
God is enriching the nation of Egypt. Specifically, he's enriching the leaders, the powerful ones in Egypt. That enrichment will continue over the next 400 years. And when the people of Israel are led out of Egypt, God works in the Egyptians so that they voluntarily give their wealth to the people of Israel. The people of Israel plunder, without violence, plunder the Egyptians as they go out in the Exodus. God is working on that even right now in this story. The sovereign God of the universe is working through Joseph's life. Providence is making sure that Joseph's sufferings are not in vain. His sufferings are being used not just for the good of those 14 years, not just for the good of those 400 years. His sufferings are pointing us even further out to greater good. If the point of the story is not, how do you lead a country? How do you plan for famine? How do you tax? How do you distribute the stuff so that the people can live and the, and the country thrives? What is the point? Well, the point is there in that last verse. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe over all the earth. Joseph has suffered. He's gone down into the dip and the lower dip and the lower dip and then been raised up out of the pit to the palace at this exact moment in time to save the lives of millions. This is God's providential plan. His sufferings are not only for his good, they're for the good of the whole known world. He saves the lives of millions. And this, of course, points us to the greater reality of Jesus and his suffering and his saving of us in the world. Providentially, we find ourselves this week, both in this part of the story of Joseph, where his sufferings lead to the salvation of many, and the same week that we celebrate the sufferings of Jesus that lead to the salvation of many. For 2,000 years after this, the Son of God would come himself as the God-man, God in the flesh, and he would suffer, and he would die, he would be forgotten, it would seem. He would cry out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you forgotten me? I am in the pit, and I am forgotten. Just as the timing had to be perfect for Joseph to rescue his millions, the timing was perfect for Jesus. We're told multiple times in the New Testament that at the fullness of time, at just the right time, when things were just right, Jesus came and lived not as the conquering hero that we expected today on Palm Sunday, but as the suffering servant who would give his life for many. And so we can read this in Romans 5, 6 through 8. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Who are the ungodly? That's us. That's you and I. 
For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Some of you, you're you're racked with guilt. You're racked with shame. You've even, maybe you've come to faith in Christ, and yet there are things in your past that haunt you. Just like Pharaoh's dreams haunted him the next morning, except now it's been years for you. And these things will just, they just won't let you go. And if, if we could look into your heart and into your mind and we could see those things that you're most ashamed of, you'd just fall down dead right now because you're, you're so, you feel so guilty, so ashamed, so, so dirty, so ugly, so, so much like a failure. And yet these, these verses here in Romans tell us that Jesus didn't come to die because you were doing a good enough job that you had cleaned up enough of your background that he could hold his nose and accept you. It says, while we were still sinners, while we were still ugly, while we were still just covered in our own sin and filth, Christ died for us. So if we we go back to our, our roller coaster picture for Joseph's life here, we can look at basically the same chart for Jesus' life. So let's go to the next one. We've got eternity past. Jesus, God the Son, hanging out with God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, everything's good, right? The incarnation, he humbles himself. He comes down to earth as the God-man, the lowest he'd ever been in his life at that point. He lives in obscurity for 30 years. And at the same point in his life where Joseph is risen up, Jesus begins his public ministry at about 30 years old. And he becomes the, the celebrity. It's, it's kind of like he comes up out of that, that load. He becomes the, the one that everybody in the land wants to go listen to and be near and touch and be healed by. He's, humanly speaking, he's at a high point. And then he's arrested. And then... On the cross, I put the cross as an, as an up because not only is he lifted up on the cross, and those are the terms that the Bible uses to speak of Jesus, lifted up on the cross. But that is the reason he came. And so at that point, he's accomplishing his goal. Even though it would seem it was thwarted, that he had been arrested, wrongfully accused, sham of a trial, all that stuff, as he's hanging on the cross, he's actually accomplishing the thing that he came for. And then his body is buried in a grave. And the whole world said... Story's over. And then as we celebrate next week, the resurrection. And he goes rocketing up past all of those previous things. And it is in that low point and in that resurrection that we have our hope. That we can be saved. Next week, I hope to make it abundantly clear that is the death of Jesus on the cross and his resurrection from the dead that gives us hope for salvation. I'm not going to use this drawing next week, but I want it stuck in your head so that we can use it to interpret things next week. As Jesus is hanging on the cross, 
Not only does he cry out, God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you forgotten me? He also, just before he breathes his last breath, he says, it is finished. What's finished? The story's not done. It seems like it, but the story's not done. He will be raised on the third day. He reigns and lives even now. The story is not done. So what is done? The sacrifice for all of our sins. Every single one. The past, the present, and the future sins. Today, do you need to come to faith in Christ for the first time? Do you need to say, Lord, I put my faith in you. I put my trust in you. I can't save myself, so I come to you. I confess I'm a sinner. I'm miserable. I'm lost. I can't do anything to rescue myself, but I believe that you can rescue me. Or have you come to faith in the past, but you're holding on to some things from the past also, and you're thinking, God can't forgive those things. Those things are just too bad, and maybe I need to work those off myself. Those words on the cross, it is finished, argue against that. He doesn't say, I've mostly finished the job at this point, and you're going to have to do some of it yourself. Or you're going to have to live the rest of your life haunted by those things that you keep secret. He says, it is finished. It's all finished. It's all canceled. Even the future stuff that you haven't done yet. Even the stuff that you're not aware of. His death covers it all. The suffering, the death of Jesus, saves the lives of millions at just the right time. Just as the suffering of Joseph leads to the salvation of millions at just the right time. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, the amazing man, Joseph. We thank you that you used suffering to make him strong and to make him humble. That you used uh, his being forgotten in prison so that you can bring him out at just the right time in order to save the lives of millions. We thank you for all of that and the example that he is to us, the encouragement that his story is to us. But more than that, Lord, we thank you that you, Jesus, came, that you suffered at just the right time, that you died at just the right time, that you rose from the dead at just the right time to save millions, even billions. So, Lord, we as your people, we confess that it's hard to believe that. That as we think about this idea of it being finished on the cross, we, in our shame and sometimes in our pride, we want to hold on to some of the stuff and say, no, it really wasn't finished for those things. I'm going to have to deal with that. I'm just going to have to suffer with that. I'm going to have to be haunted by that. I'm going to have to do penance and try to work off that debt. So we confess that, Lord, that that is our natural tendency, to try to deal with some of our sin in our own way. We confess that that is completely fruitless. It does nothing but continue to entrap us. So, Lord, please give us the faith to trust that you are our rescuer, that when you said it is finished on the cross, that it really was finished, that all of it was taken care of, And not only are we unable to take care of any of 
ourselves, but you don't ask us to. You have done it yourself. And so I pray, Lord, for, for those in this congregation who need to experience the freedom of knowing that all of their sin, past, present, and future, covered on the cross, I pray that you would make that real to them. For us who think we're past that point, we don't need to be reminded of that, Lord. Please, please humble us. Please show us again how utterly dependent we are on you for our salvation. We cannot do it. We trust in you. We depend on you. In Jesus' name.